You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It's Monday, April 18th, 2022. I'm Maggie Lake. And here with me today is Bill Zox, Portfolio Manager at Brandywine Global. Hi, Bill. Welcome to Real Vision. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, and we're glad to have you. Um, Kicking off this week, I think a lot of people slowly rolling out of um, what was a holiday week here. Um, So maybe volume's a little, a lot of people, a lot of kids on spring break and stuff. So we may have some participants out of the market, but looking at a pretty muted start to the week, we had some we had some mild buying, but turned into a mild sell-off across U.S. equities. We've got the 10-year bond yield kind of anchored at 286 at last check, oil up, gold up, crypto mix. So a little bit of a, you know, you get the feeling everyone's kind of um, trying to figure out how they want to position here now that we've wrapped the first quarter. Before we dive in a little bit, Bill, though, why don't you tell us about your focus area and the approach you take to investing in this environment? Sure. I'm a high yield bond portfolio manager at Brandywine Global on a team of three in Columbus, Ohio, but we work very closely with our colleagues, most of whom are in Philadelphia, a few in London, Singapore, Montreal. And uh, we're value investors, long only right now in high yield, two mutual funds, Brandywine Global High Yield Fund and Brandywine Global Corporate Credit Fund, uh, some institutional accounts. And uh, as I said, value investors, but uh, liquidity is very important. We want to be liquidity providers and get paid for providing liquidity to the market. So that execution edge is a very important part of what we do. And we want to get the cycle right. So uh, that means we want to hold up better than than most of our peers during down markets and capture our fair share of up markets. And if you put the two together, we, we should rise to the top over time. Yeah. And I think that's so important right now because there's a lot of discussion about where we are in the cycle and there's not a lot of agreement um, and certainly no consensus on where we're heading. So where, where do you see things? I mean, what is the sort of framework that you're operating on in terms of where we are with um, you know, the factors that matter to you making that that right mix in terms of timing the end and, and leaving some room on the upside. Where are we in the cycle? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the, the market cycle or the credit cycle, uh, I would describe as being late cycle. This is very, a, a very unusual uh, cycle, of course. And, and that's not all that helpful, though, because late cycle, sometimes that's a year, sometimes it's three years. But by, you know, what, what I think is important is you, you need to stay away from the fringes of uh, extreme credit, you know, stay away from the triple uh, C part of the high yield market, for instance, which has done the best this year, did the best last year. I think that's a dangerous place to be. You should be, um, you know, steering away from triple C's and, uh, you know, looking for value elsewhere. And I think it happens to be a very good time actually to move up in credit quality in the high yield market and, uh, you know, add some duration. We came into the year very light on duration, but we've been closing that gap steadily all year as rates have moved up so much. 
Yeah. Um, so we, we've probably got a mix of people listening. Um, and I'm so glad we're, we have the opportunity today to sort of talk a little bit about this part of the market because, you know, we tend to kind of, the focus is uh, on treasuries and, and some of the instruments around that. And we kind of breeze through equities. We don't, we don't always sort of sit and focus on, on corporate bonds and certainly not on high yield bonds. So I'm really happy to have this opportunity today. Some of our listeners are going to be very familiar with what you're talking about because we do get a lot of questions on HYG. And so, so clearly some people have this in our portfolio, but I think there are other people maybe who it might be in their portfolio, but it's not a space they, that they're sort of well-versed in. So when you're talking about, let's clear one thing up. When you're talking about high yielding corporate debt, um, this is, this is, you know, commonly referred to used to be commonly referred to as junk, which I think can carry its own sort of, you know, conceptions about this. So, you know, maybe give us your definition of what are we talking about high yielding debt? You just mentioned that that credit quality. So this is very much linked to ratings, right? The ratings on the sort of viability and ability for these companies to pay back debt. The 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 higher the yields, I'm assuming, and the lower the rating, the riskier it is. Doesn't mean they're not going to pay back, but the more at risk they are and the more you get paid for taking a chance on that. And then the the reverse happens as you get sort of higher up the food chain in the safer instruments, uh, you can do that in debt and then you move right in from high yield into investment grade. Is that, a, is that an accurate description of the corporate bond market? Right, right. And, and I'm focused on the U.S. high yield market, which is about $1.5 trillion. Uh, it, it's the double B ratings and below. And, and so are um, they risky? Is it risky companies in there? Are they small companies? I mean, who who issues in that high yield debt market? What would the issuer look like? And is it what we think when we hear junk? Yeah, well, uh, no, no. And, and I mean, that that it used to be that way. But over time, the market has become much higher quality. As, as one example, the double B portion or the highest rated portion of the high yield market was about 35% during the global financial crisis. That's now over 50%. Mm. And there's a number of public companies, many of them are new entrants into the high yield market over the last couple of years that have public market caps in the 10, 20, 30, $40 billion range and up. That's very unusual. It used to be more uh, private companies, private equity sponsored companies, mm -hmm. not without public equities. And um, you know the the uh, they, they the businesses just weren't as good. I mean, you could think of old economy businesses. Now we have a lot of technology companies. They don't need the capital, but they're accessing the high yield market early on, just to establish a presence in the corporate bond market. So then they can move up into investment grade over time. It takes time. The ratings agencies are very focused on uh, tenure in the market and size. So, um, you so know, that's one good so interesting. So that, yeah. so this is what we would consider future earnings, right? So a company that doesn't have, even if it had, even if it's public, that doesn't have a long track record or, or is what we would consider in the equity space, future earnings, they might find themselves in the high yield bond market. You know, why, why high yield, what puts them in high yield as opposed to investment grade? If they're better capitalized, more substantial companies, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, it's generally not the non-earners. Mm -hmm. Most of most of these companies to access the high yield market are generating earnings 
positive free cash flow. Not everyone, but in most cases. Okay. And but they're high yield just because uh, you know, and they're we, your first bond issue is very unlikely to be investment grade rated unless you know maybe if you were spun out of an investment grade company you might get an investment grade rating but just let me give give you one example this year Roblox uh, they accessed the high yield market last year for the first time and you know the the market cap right now is about 25 billion dollars a tad less it was as high as 75 billion at one time 3 billion dollars of cash about a billion dollars of debt and $550 million of free cash flow last year. Uh, that's a high yield company. I think over time, it will migrate up to investment grade. They don't need this capital at all. But these companies, you know, you, you might see this with Meta at some point in the near future. You saw it with Apple mm. uh, a few years ago. Eventually, they just accumulate so much cash that they all of a sudden borrow a lot of money to buy back stock. There's still very strong credits, mm. but one day, one day we'll probably wake up and Meta will borrow $50 billion to do a stock buyback. Um, that's, you know, that's years down the road for something like a Roblox, but to be in a position to do that, you want to access the corporate bond market earlier. Other examples would be Twilio, Elastic, Twitter's a high yield issuer, Netflix was, Tesla was. So, you know, some some very good companies uh, start out in the high yield market right now. These are not tiny um, old economy businesses necessarily. That's so interesting. And that's certainly different than, um, you know, I think what would have been maybe in the past years ago, what would have been typical in high yield, certainly when, when you know, I was first aware of it and believe it or not, had to cover it for a bit in a former life. Um, so what is your, so now I think that's a great sort of, you know, layer of understanding for us all now when we're talking about a market that has changed and morphed over the years. So what is your what is your base case for high yield bonds over the next six months? You, you did mention that you think it's going to get um, a little bit. It sounds like you're going to have to be a little judicious and then maybe, maybe move up in investment grade. But how do you think high yield bonds are going to perform? Uh, and what are you advising clients if you look out over the next six months? Sure. I mean, first of all, I mean, let's start. This is a tough environment for all financial assets. You have interest rates moving higher and higher interest rate volatility. That puts pressure on all financial assets. The Fed is trying to tighten financial conditions to get inflation contained. And so that the Fed is working against us. That's very unusual for the owners of risk assets mm. or even uh, longer treasuries. You know, we're not accustomed to that since the global financial crisis, except for about one year, late 2017 to late 2018, the Fed has been solidly in the business of suppressing volatility in financial assets. Now the Fed needs to see more volatility so financial conditions tighten and we can contain inflation. But with that backdrop, what do you do? I mean, you know, uh, I think it's dangerous to say I'm going to sit on the sidelines with 8.5% inflation until it's clear to me that, um, you know, that we're at the end of this process. That's a very dangerous thing to do. So I think, uh, you know, let's look at how high yield stacks up compared to your other alternatives. And right now we have a 6.5% all-in yield in high yield. That's yield to worst. 
we were at 4.3% at the beginning of the year. So I think that's starting to get the attention of investors. That 6.5% yield is pretty attractive. We don't know where inflation will level out. That's very uncertain. But I think looking out two years, three years, four years, when inflation is under control, that 6.5% starting yield will look attractive relative to inflation. So here's an opportunity to generate a reasonable return above inflation. And it's moved up over 200 and, uh, you know, 220 basis points year to date. That's quite a move, much more attractive today than it was at the beginning of the year. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. That's so interesting. I, but I, I have many questions about how you, you know, how you sort of navigate that. But, but before we do, you know, when we're talking about the relation with the Fed, an excellent point. We are in this different regime, right? That we haven't seen some people who are investing, some people who are trading, haven't experienced uh, this before. Uh, and it's unclear. There's a lot of disagreement, as I mentioned at the top, about what's going to happen with the Fed. Uh, Ralph Powell interviewed James Aiken for the platform, and they talked about the Fed and the fact that uh, Aiken was suggesting maybe things are different this time around. Let's have a listen to that clip, and then we'll pick it up on the other side. We have been trained that central banks cannot hike interest rates much, and we pencil in that, for the Fed at least, the best they can ever hope to do is somewhere just over 2%, maybe a tiny bit higher, all right? And then something breaks, and then we go down the cycle again, you know, rinse and repeat. They're cutting rates, they're buying bonds, and round and round we go. This time has a bit of a different smell to it for me, you know? A bit of a different smell. We've broken the ice on fiscal. I think that's a big deal. We've broken the ice via direct transfers to households, which is why uniquely in the global pandemic shutdown of 2020, household disposable income went up. And if household disposable income is rising, it's no surprise that everyone sits at home and consumes at home and keeps tapping away on Amazon or whatever. So if you've broken the ice with fiscal transfers in the pandemic, then you're going to need to support households during what will be a very expensive transition uh, renewable transition. I mean, the cost for UK households, which has a pretty old housing stock of retrofitting homes to be climate fit, immense, immense, and, and largely not discussed by people in Downing Street, but who's surprised. So my bias here that as much as we've been trained that this thing called R-star is going down, meaning there is some kind of natural limit, not far above 2%-ish, as to how the Fed can rise, I'm starting to wonder if that's in play. And to be clear, it doesn't mean, oh my gosh, they're going to hike to 5% or 6%. I think that's a stretch. But my bias, which I'll continue to evaluate, of course, is that this Fed's going to keep hiking and hiking and hiking, and we could still be some distance from things breaking. 
that full interview is available to Essential Plus and Pro members on the website. Um, so, Bill, what you know, every time we talk about the sort of trajectory for the Fed, it usually contains the sentence, them breaking something, <laughs> which is, I think, the stress we're all living under. Um, talk to me a little bit about how this this series of rate hikes and, and a rising rate environment will impact the high yield market. What, what do we need to understand about that dynamic? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the right way to think about something will break in the financial markets. I think this will play out in the financial markets probably before we see the Fed do as much as is as, as even discounted in the market today. Mm. So we'll see it in the financial markets first and definitely we'll see it there before we see it in the real economy. So I think that is the right way to think about it. Um, I don't think that that we're going to see high yield be the canary in the coal miner, that, that high yield will feel the stress first. Now, uh, from about Thanksgiving on, there has definitely been pressure on the high yield asset class because uh, macro players or market timers thought, you know, this was late cycle. The Fed is is trying to uh, tighten financial conditions. High yield should bear the brunt of that. But uh, what I think will happen this time is that equities need to bear the brunt of it, and mm. in part because equities have done so well since the bottom March 23rd of 2020. Equities are up over 70 percentage points more than high yield. Equities are up over 100 percent. High yields up a little bit over 30 percent since that bottom. When equities do that well, that really supports high yield. That means that that equity cushion supports the credit quality of high yield. And it also means that high yield companies have had fantastic access to capital mm. for all of 2020 and 2021. And uh, they're not accessing the market so much this year, but they still have access to capital in the high yield market if they need it. So, um, you know, I think that something will break. I don't think it's going to be high yield. Um, but I'm also not seeing any market signals that suggest to me that the Fed, you know, that we priced in too much for the Fed. Mm. You know, I think equities, equities would be down a lot more credit spreads would be a lot wider. Uh, the yield curve would be inverted again and, and significantly so. So I'm just not, I don't think we've reached that point yet, but we seem to be heading in that direction. So if something breaks, it sounds like you think that the fallout will be sharpest in equities just because they've rallied more. So more to fall, further to fall. How does high yield not get taken out and hit if you've got a total risk-off environment? Because we, we, what we've seen is these sort of extreme reactions in the market. Uh, d is that a concern? Is it do, do equities have to fall in an orderly manner for, for, for high yield to be able to hold up? Does it all get taken down? Are we just talking about the bounce? How does that work? Because that confuses me. Yeah, I mean, well, I think one, let's start with where defaults right now are well below 1% in the high yield market. And they average over long periods of time, maybe three and a half to 4% default rates. We got up to 6% during the pandemic. It used to be in recessions, you would think eight to 12% for defaults. We're below 1% right now. So um, that's one thing to keep in mind. How wide can spreads go if defaults are really low? 
And then I just want to use an example, a very extreme example of Tesla accessing the high yield market in 2017. I don't re- I think their market cap was like 40 to 50 billion at that time. Maybe they had a couple billion dollars of debt. And you could say, wow, you know, that's a big equity cushion. But if that equity, some people thought it was, you know, dramatically overvalued at that time, if you, that equity is down 80%, you've got to think about it. Well, now Tesla has over a trillion dollars of market yeah. cap. I mean, at a certain point, the equity cushion is so large that the bonds should not be sensitive to a down 20% move in equities, down 30% move in equities. And I think broadly speaking, we're closer to that point in the equity market overall, that mm. even a 20% drawdown in equities across the board um, would not necessarily mean that the the probability of defaults in the high yield market would increase uh, much at all. So interesting. And again, it, it sounds like that circles back to the nature of who's issuing in high yield now, as opposed to say, you know, a couple decades ago. Right, right. Very interesting. We've got some great questions coming in and I'm going to ask this one first from Michael on the RV site, um, because I think it's what, what's on everyone's mind. 40% of retirement is in various bonds, some government and some international. I am retired. Should I change these out? This, of course, I'm going to, before you even answer, say like, we don't know what your situation is, Michael, right? So anytime anyone asks a specific question about their portfolio, it's almost impossible for someone like Bill or any of our um, our guests to answer that because it's such, a, such an individual um, question. But I think it does raise an important point of like, what is the risk profile you should have? I think if we broaden it out, we can maybe answer that. That some that an investor in high yield should have. Do they have a place in everyone's portfolio? Do you have to have a certain appetite for risk or be in a certain demographic for that to be a, a, a more um, you know uh, a suggested holding bill? How do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, at the outset, you you said uh, something that that would not you know you hear frequently that high yield bonds are riskier, and they do have a greater risk of default, um, but there are other risks associated with bonds, like interest rate risk, uh, liquidity risk, um, you know, various other risks, prepayment risk, uh, extension risk. So uh, you, you have to think about all of those risks, first of all. And what we've seen over the last, uh, really since the beginning of 2020, is that interest rate risk has been a, a very real issue and low starting yields uh, low yields relative to inflation has been an issue for high quality bonds. Mm. Now, if you go back to the beginning of this year, the 10 year tip or that that's a good proxy for a yield above inflation over the next 10 years, that was minus 1.1% at the beginning of this year. Now it's less than minus 1%, minus 0.1%, I should say. So at the, that real yield is up one percentage point year to date. That's very good. You know, that's a much better starting point for investment grade fixed income, but it's still negative. You know, by the t- in 2018, when the Fed slowed the economy down and then pivoted, that 10 year tip yield was about positive 1%, give or take, in the fourth quarter of 2018. So it's still very low. It's just a lot closer to zero than it was at the beginning of the year. So, um, you know, and then equities are on the other side. So we do think that 
the U.S. high yield, if you think of the, the typical 60-40 U.S. centric portfolio, I know, you know that that this is going back uh, to a prior generation, but that was kind of the typical starting point mm. for many investors: 60% U.S. equities, 40% investment grade U.S. fixed income. High yield is a great diversifier to that. Over the last couple of years, uh, it dramatically outperformed investment grade fixed income. Uh, equities did much better. I think going forward, U.S. equities are much more vulnerable than high yield. High yield has been hit a lot harder um, year to, in the year-to-date period relative to equities than you would typically see. So I think going forward, high yield could protect you more in a difficult environment for equities. So I, I do think it, 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 along with lots of other diversifiers, it's, it's a great addition to the traditional 60-40 portfolio. And, and we know that people need yield if they're going to, you know, meet their retirement goals. I think that's one of the things that, you know, we struggle with in what has been this ultra low rate environment is that people have been trying to find that. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Ralph has a great question uh, from the RV site. If the economy takes a turn for the worse, what types of high yield issuers would you expect to do worst and which would you expect to do the best? So are there sectors within the high yield market um, that look better positioned for the environment we're in? Well, um, you know, one of the inflation is a major risk and the high yield market, about 13 percent is in energy companies and another uh three, four, five percentage points is in other commodities producers. So mm-hmm. you can compare that to the S&P 500 is about 3% in energy. So 10 additional percentage points. So that part of the high yield market is well positioned for what is the biggest risk that we're facing right now. Now, commodities are treacherous over long periods of time, probably um, you know, can be good debt investors. I, I used to work with a very good um, uh, analyst who covered energy and other commodities, and many times he preferred the bonds to the equities because uh, you weren't making as much of a bet on the commodity price. Um, oh, so, interesting. So, so interesting. It, it is it is treacherous, but that's one area. And then the other area I would I would highlight would be technology, which has come under of course significant pressure in the equity market. I'm not talking about unprofitable tech, which has really been. Slammed. I'm talking about you know good tech companies that have pricing power and still their market caps have maybe been cut in half or more, but they still have many many multiples of equity market cap relative to debt. In some cases, cash in excess of debt generate free cash flow and good quality businesses. I think that's a great place to to protect yourself long term in the U.S. high yield market. And what about? 
high yield. So it, it, if you're thinking about this, um, and, and great point about you know wanting to own a bond versus equity because of some of the things like reducing exposure to the actual commodity price. What about high yield versus ingress, investment grade? So if somebody's saying, I'm looking for a return, why not in this uncertain environment just go to investment grade bonds? What 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 is the outperformance you see in high yield? Yeah, the I mean, one our starting point is a lot better, six and a half percent yield in uh, high yield versus four percent in investment grade. The the duration in high yield is a little bit over four, and the market tends to be you know more like seven in the investment grade market. So more interest rate risk, and then what's happening with investment grade issuers, investment grade issuers are migrating down to the lowest part, the triple B portion of the investment grade market is growing dramatically as the all-in cost of capital is still very low for these companies. So they don't want to be single A. They don't, let alone double A or triple A. They want to issue debt, buy back stock, pay dividends, do M&A, and increase the debt in their capital structure. So they're, they're in you know, migrating down in credit quality to the triple B portion. High yield has been the opposite. The companies, you know, were were certainly scared from the global financial crisis. Mm -hmm. They had a pretty big scare in 2011, 2016. And again, during the pandemic, they're moving up in credit quality. So that's why the double B portion of the market is now 50% plus compared to 35% during the global financial crisis. So, um, you know, I, I think those those things uh, that the management teams are working more on behalf of the bondholders in the high yield universe, and you know, much more on behalf of the equity holders in the investment grade universe. To generalize, so so interesting. So when when people are looking at this and and, and want to take into some of the uh, some of the issues that take into consideration some of the issues that you just mentioned. When we're looking at high yield funds, how, what do we need to understand? What do we need to look at in terms of the way they're structured? Structured? Should we look at um, the the companies that that are in there by sector? Is this a duration issue? Are we looking at the ratings in terms of what's being held? I mean, are you actively managing uh, your funds and choosing across all those criteria, or are they sort of sectioned out for people who want to get super specific and look? you know, underneath the covers at one of those issues alone, if you understand what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, we, we think that active management for the long-term investor high yield is very well suited to active management. Unlike uh, say U S equities where passive has done extremely well mm. in the high yield universe, passive is not particularly low cost and it's been a very poor long-term performer there's just not enough liquidity. So the, the ETFs don't even try to track the full market and they have trouble tracking the most liquid portion of the market. The ETFs are, are very effective at providing liquidity over the short run to investors mm. in, in a less liquid asset class, but that costs a lot. We love to be on the other side of the ETFs, for instance. They, they provide us with alpha, we provide them with liquidity and we get compensated for Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I think it, you should look at active managers and I think it's important to find an active manager that can handle the full cycle. Well, uh, there's a lot of big pools, two big pools of high yield assets where they're just playing the cycle. 
They, they just ride with the cycle. So they get killed during down markets, make a lot of money in up markets. That's not a bad business proposition because the money comes rushing in uh, during the strong markets and they don't mind if they lose a bunch of money, lose a bunch of assets. Over time, it's a very good asset class and that's a good business. But for the investor, we think it makes a lot more sense to get the cycle right, which means try to protect capital to the extent possible during down markets. And then you you only have to capture your fair share of the up markets and you do better over a full cycle. So that that's what we do. I think that mm-hmm. makes the most sense for, for end investors. And the last question is duration. Do people have to, to, to pay attention to that in this market? Is it important? And is it important at this juncture when we have so little clarity about what's about to happen? Well, yeah, yeah. Um, it, it's. I think it's helpful to uh, high yield is a lower duration asset class than other fixed income sectors. For instance, uh, the Bloomberg Aggregate Index or core fixed income is about a six and a half duration. The high yield market is in the low fours. Mm. Um, so uh, I think that is helpful. But there's a time to be lower duration. There's a time, you know, to to bring your duration up. We came into the year, as I said earlier, very light in duration, but with the 10-year going from a hundred, from 1.5% to 2.86%, uh, we've added a lot of duration as the year has progressed. And we think that at some point when we all realize what broke and that the uh, you know we've um, discounted more than what the Fed will end up doing, interest rate volatility settles down, interest rates stop increasing, we think that duration will do real well. Even if that means that when we get to that point, you know, maybe we're in a recession, uh, but these high quality, high yield bonds, uh, I think will still do fine in that environment because they'll benefit from lower interest rates. Yeah. Bill, fascinating stuff. I, I learned so much today, and I think uh, everyone listening did as well. So I'm so glad we were able to sort of take a dive into that. So thank you so much. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. Um, and I, I didn't get to get to all the questions, um, but there were some great ones. So we'll have to get Bill back on again, and, and we'll keep our eye fixed on that part of the market that maybe doesn't always get our attention. Bill's ox for us. And thanks to all of you. Um, as I said, fantastic questions. We appreciate your time. Uh, Warm Pies is going to be here tomorrow, so be sure to turn in. In the meantime, take care and good luck out there. What's up, revolutionaries? Thanks for tuning in to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. For more content like this, head over to realvision.com and get unfiltered access to the very best, brightest, and biggest names in finance. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.